of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And Heigl, today I'm so excited. We're talking about one of my favorite shows, one of my favorite pop culture entities of all time, Jeopardy. Yeah, this is, I know this is a big one for you. I know. I was really surprised to hear that you weren't as into it as I am. I saw you as like somebody who did you audition and get turned down or something? Like, <laughs> you you aren't as into this as I would have thought. No, that would be the very predictable. No, you want to know what the sad truth of it is is that I was in my um, middle school quiz bowl team. That's right. Yeah, and I, we suffered a very humiliating loss at one point, and I've you know, frankly I've never been able to play a buzz in trivia game again. It's really derailed my career uh it was like i blew my acl out or something the trivia <laughs> equivalent of that i just i never played again and it's all too painful for me i can't i'm not making this up i did i was in quiz bowl and we were it was a humiliating defeat let me just say what happened i mean was there one question in particular that really no it like, was just this it was like the they had thing. like they had like they the other team had like me on steroids because I could never do, I could never do <laughs> my math. worst enemy, me. Yeah, basically. On steroids. Well, yeah, because it was like this dude like had command of just all kinds of obscure, ridiculous facts, but he could also do math, which I could oh. never do. So we were just murdered. I think it was like they got like a perfect score. Ninety percent of the answers were from this kid, and we got like ten. It was embarrassing, and it was like just as far as like that team had ever gone. And I, it's, you know, it's haunted me ever since. Um, 
But I, you know what I did spend a lot of time with Jeopardy wise as growing up was the SNL skits. Oh yeah. Um, we'll talk about that in here. Definitely. Of course. Great. But before we go any further, we have a little special treat for this episode. You know, passions run high here on Too Much Information, and it's something that we love about ourselves, but sometimes the language does get a little bit rowdy. So in the interest of good taste, we've obtained, at great expense, I might add, the original buzz-in sound from the unaired 1964 pilot of Jeopardy. I'm so excited to share this. Let's give it a listen. Isn't that great? We do it all for you. Anyway, that's it. I just wanted to share that. Well, then let's dive the f*** in, baby. (laughs) I'm glad we're getting used out of that already. Yes, it's time to kick off this episode, this episode, if you will. We're going to talk about how Lucille Ball helped get Alex Trebek the hosting gig, how hash brownies nearly put him out of commission, how the theme tune was written on a Hollywood icon's piano, and how the writers come up with the clues in the first place. We'll also lift the lid on the show's finely honed production process, give you tips on the insane PTSD-inducing preparation that prospective contestants go through, and reveal whether or not Alex Trebek ever met his SNL celebrity Jeopardy nemesis Sean Connery in real life. Without further ado, here's everything you didn't know about Jeopardy. First things first, we're going to go back to the pre-Trebek era. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Jeopardy! actually first premiered way back in 1964 with a gentleman by the name of Art Fleming as the host. And the game was derived in response to a very famous controversy in the late 50s when it came out that a number of really popular primetime quiz shows were rigged. Contestants had gotten the answers beforehand, and this created a huge scandal. Today, it would be like if TMZ did an expose on who wants to be a millionaire, Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, and Family Feud all being faked and fraudulent. Half a dozen of the biggest quiz shows on television were all canceled within a few months of each other. And believe it or not, there were actually congressional hearings about all this. Like nothing else was going on in the 50s. Like they could just table everything else and work on the game show problem. (laughs) Yeah, in the middle of the Cold War, (laughs) the insidious problem of rigged game shows was given Senate time. But, But this was a serious thing. Like people's reputations were ruined and new legislation was put into effect. So this was kind of a big deal. And for a number of years, TV networks were scared of putting new quiz shows on the air. And by the dawn of the 60s, the genre has sort of disappeared from the airwaves. The dark days. <laughs> right. This was a sad time for trivia nerds like me. This didn't sit well with Merv Griffin, who was a, uh, a TV host, a producer, and a game show developer at, uh, I think, NBC. And he was on a flight to New York in 1963, and uh, he was discussing uh, with his wife, you know, I, I really want to make a, a quiz show, but the networks really aren't going for it. They're really nervous about, you know, all the, the rigging and the, the, the whole scandal. And his wife said, what, what if you just give the contestants the answers to start with? And she was totally kidding, but Merv's eyes just lit up. That was his eureka moment. It's the most, like, stoner like, what if you just gave him the answers instead of the questions, man? <laughs> and that is where Jeopardy, uh, you know, the whole crux of Jeopardy is that you are yeah. buzzing in with the question. Like you were given the answer and you give the question. So he goes back to his office and he makes this template. He's got 
10 categories uh, with 10 answers a piece of varying difficulty with the dollar value assigned to each and, you know, with increasing difficulty. He has all his friends over to his apartment to sort of play this makeshift game. Uh, he goes into NBC, has a meeting. He has like a whole cardboard thing up on the board with like envelopes with questions on the inside. He makes this whole cute presentation and he does <laughs> it for the, the game show executives. And the executives were into it, but they weren't sure that it was compelling enough. And I guess one executive said, you know, I think that the show needs more Jeopardies. And that became, I mean, again, this is like, you can't write this. I mean, this is where he's really, he's pulling in stuff from left and right. Because initially he was going to call the game, What's the Question? Which is, you know, a little Mm. on the nose, but Jeopardy, a lot more drama to it. It's a great name. Yeah. So after months of tinkering, he's presenting it for final approval to show the, uh, as a proof of concept to the executives, he played like a little ad hoc game in the boardroom and they went for it. And so it was- uh, Who won? Uh, yeah. Merv Griffin won. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Funny thing about Merv Griffin was that he actually got his start as a musician. When he was like 19, he was like singing on radio with an orchestra. And you know that song, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts? I sure do. <laughs> you know, they in in the in the Lion King, I think um mm-hmm. somebody sings it. I forget who sings it. That yeah. was his song. I guess like he made it big in the 50s. He sold like millions of copies of the song. So he got to start as a musician and he 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 never stopped. I love the novelty, the novelty songwriter era. Like what's the equivalent of that today? It's probably like dumb shit like TikTok talent. Oh, we yeah. didn't get anything good. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. That's a great song. That is a great song. But you know what's an even better song? The theme to what? Jeopardy, which Merv Griffin <laughs> wrote. <laughs> Merv Griffin wrote this song. It, it has a title. It, it was well, it was initially written. Oh, what is it? It was written as a lullaby for his son, Tony. It was actually called that makes A Time for Tony. And then once he you know, decided to put it to use in the game show he's developing, he changed the title to Think. And apparently, this is really weird, he wrote it on Marlon Brando's old piano. The Jeopardy song, hmm. the do-do-do-do, I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't I hum it. anymore because we'd probably have to pay, it was written, <laughs> apparently he and Marlon Brando used to live in the same apartment building, and when Marlon moved out, he gifted his piano to Merv. So, he wrote the Jeopardy song. Merv, I want you to... Merv, I want you to have this piano. I want you to take this piano. I want you. I th- I have a vision for you. You're gonna write. You're gonna write a a, a game show theme, Merv. It's gonna be beautiful. That turns into like Donald. I was gonna Trump. say, I yeah, that was, that my, was, it went it went places. It was a whole spectrum of <laughs> whole spectrum of dysfunctional men that I can't quite identify, but it was good. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you. So Merv wrote this song. It took him basically as long as it takes to sing it, to write. Like, it took him less mm-hmm. than a minute, he would later say. And that minute earned him around $80 million in royalties by, I think, 2010. This is according to Mental Floss. Um, he sold the rights to Merv Griffin Enterprises to Coca-Cola in 1986 for like $250 million because he developed all sorts of other shows, including Wheel of Fortune. But he retained yeah. the rights to think the jeopardy theme and received a royalty every time it was played in syndication you know all around the world and reruns and he made a stupid amount of money from that song so it was definitely a a minute well spent i love merv griffin uh he's just (laughs) like if he he had a talk show in the 60s and 70s too just a real real genial guy great interviewer uh you know what's on his tombstone what i will not be right back after this message 
that great? God I mean, yeah, that's great, great. Great guy. I do. It's it's funny. It does sound like like thinking about the Jeopardy theme song. It does sound like exercises, like interval, interval, interval. Uh. I had a professor who used to when he was teaching the bebop scale, he would always play the Jeopardy theme song. That oh wow. Chromatic run at the end. Na, 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 na. He's like, this is how you. This is this is how you make eighty million dollars in one minute. <laughs> yeah, right. No, not playing jazz, baby. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier the first episode of Jeopardy premiered on March thirtieth, nineteen sixty four, and the original host was Art Fleming, who was something of a, a game show legend. Uh, this was on during the day, and it was uh, an instant success. I think only Hollywood Squares had more viewers in the sixties, and it was on the air till nineteen seventy five. And when the network canceled it, I think that there was just they wanted to appeal to more younger uh, female demographic in the afternoon, and so they filled that time slot with uh, with soap operas. And it came back briefly in I think nineteen seventy eight as the all new Jeopardy, and it was canceled like six months later. Daytime soaps mm-hmm. kind of became the dominant force in afternoon slots, but Merv never really forgot Jeopardy. I mean, he went on to have a lot of success with um, Wheel of Fortune, which is based on his childhood love of the game Hangman. Uh, and so by 1983, I mean, he was doing very well, but he really he believed that his quiz show idea deserved another shot. And TV execs weren't really feeling it. I mean, the cold quiz show thing seemed kind of passe at that time. But then he got some help by the popularity of a new board game. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually uh, Trivial Pursuit had debuted in 1981 and quickly, <laughs> can you say something like taken the board game world by storm? Do things actually do that? I mean, I guess if, if anything did, Trivial Pursuit probably did. <laughs> it would be Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, Trivial Pursuit coming straight out of Montreal, Quebec, baby. By uh, two Canadian journalists. Did you know this? I, I didn't know this. Chris Haney, a photo editor for the Montreal Gazette, and Scott Abbott, a sports editor for the Canadian Press. So they developed the game in 1979 in Montreal. They sell the rights in 1982, and it just exploded. You know, runaway popularity. And that is what ended up changing the minds of at over at King World Productions. But... They were still down a host. Yes, that's true. And enter. Enter. Well, you know, it's interesting. Trivial Pursuit comes from Canada. You know who else comes from Canada? Ooh, who else comes from Canada, baby? How's that for Oof. a segue? Alex Trebek. The late. But not race. really Alex Trebek. That's, that is absolutely right. Alex Trebek's real name yeah. was George Alexander Trebek. I feel like that's like a, a Canada English thing. Like Paul McCartney's real name is James Paul McCartney. I don't know why, but I feel like that was such a thing in the mm. in the British Commonwealth to to give you like a they first just... name that was just for special occasions. Like the front room that you don't go in. <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah. But no, Alex Trebek's real name was George. Uh, good Lord, what a legend. The late Yeah, great. what do you say about oh, Alex I, Trebek? I have so much to say about Alex. I mean... Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, he actually, he got recommended for the job on Jeopardy by none other than Lucille Ball. Did you realize that? That's, no, that's a that's, hell of a cosign. That is pretty crazy. But let's... Just do a quick overview of his career. I mean, he got his start up in Canada where he was like kind of something of a heartthrob. Like he started uh, hosting. I believe it. Are you kidding me? Well, okay. Of course I believe. Yeah. You're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't shouldn't have phrased it with such surprise in my voice. But um, (laughs) he hosted a show on the CBC, which was called Music Hop, which was basically the Canadian version of like American Bandstand. And there's some great footage on YouTube of like 24-year-old Alex Trebek interviewing Gordon Lightfoot and stuff and all Mm. these Canadian, uh, you know, 
up and coming pop stars and stuff. And he kind of was, he was like a journeyman broadcaster. He kind of did whatever job he could find up in Canada in the late sixties. He was doing stockyard reports, horse racing, and I think he even did curling. Um, and he was bilingual too. He's, he's French Canadian. So, um, he, he was, got a lot of use at the Canadian TV networks, um, including a Canadian high school quiz bowl called reach for the top, which I think <laughs> was his first. I know. I'm sorry. That was, I should have given you a trigger warning there. Um, <laughs> But like I said, he was something of a heartthrob and actually kind of edgy. In uh, 1971, he was up for the gig of hosting Hockey Night in Canada, which is like Monday Night Football times a thousand up there. It's this huge weekly tradition for our friends in the Great White North. But he was passed over apparently because executive producers didn't want to hire a host with a mustache. Anti-mustache discrimination is a very real thing. I mean, style and fashion was apparently a big deal for Chebec. He got kicked out of his military boarding school as a teen for refusing to cut his hair. So he was like, you know, kind of a dandy in the in the early seventies. I mean, mm. you forget people forget that like he had these vibrant plaid suits and like permed hair, and like he was kind of wild i mean i mean just, yeah, well, visually you. i mean he's not like you know but not just visually well that's true well, there's a great story in his in his memoir that came out uh just before he died i think it's called the answer is where right soon after he got to a move from canada to uh, los angeles um he was actually encouraged to move from canada to los angeles by fellow canadian alan thick uh Ooh. father of robin thick and the Ooh. dad from Oh my God! What was he the dad from? Uh, family matters, family ties, family something. Growing pains, growing pains. Growing pains. Yes. I threw you on the wrong track. That's there. right. They were. That's embarrassing. Because everybody in Canada apparently knows each other. But Trebek yeah. gets to L.A. <laughs> uh, he goes to a party in Malibu where he ate four or five brownies. Turns out they were hash brownies, and he woke up at the mm. host's house three days later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was not exactly known for his hard partying lifestyle. I guess uh, his favorite drink was low-fat milk. Uh, other fun fact, his favorite animal was the muskox. Did you realize that? <laughs> anyway, so... Trip- Where did he note that? I, I, Where did he note that? How, how do you know that? I mean, don't you have a favorite animal? I feel like it's like a rat. It's like, I feel like your favorite animal is... I like, bad- I like badgers a lot because I read... Because I had red wall growing up. Oh, yeah. But like Mrs. Yeah. Risby and the Rats and Nim would have been a big thing for you. But Oh, sure. You know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he moves to California in the 70s. Eats a bunch of hash brownies. <laughs> <laughs> and he hosts a whole string of really short-lived game shows. Uh, High Rollers was probably the, you know, the, the biggest one of no, you know, no whammy, no whammy. Yep, everyone knows high rollers. Uh, he was uh, he hosted a show called The Wizard of Odds, where he was the uh, he was the wizard. He hosted a game <laughs> show called Malcolm, which he co-hosted with an animated figurine, and that was of course all before he got the call to do a pilot for Jeopardy. After his friend, actually Art Fleming, the original Jeopardy host, uh, declined to return. I guess he didn't agree with the creative direction of the show. So um, Alex got recommended to. Uh, to audition for this show because of Lucille Ball. I guess uh, Merv Griffin, from his days as a, as a band leader, presumably, I wonder if he knew uh, Ricky Ricardo back in the early 50s as, uh, you know, hmm. in, in Ricky's band leader days. But he and Lucy were tight, and Lucy was a huge fan of High Rollers, which was the game show that uh, Trebek hosted prior to Jeopardy. And I think she even appeared on it once i think there's no no video Ooh. footage of it but i i think there's like a picture or something that floating around the internet when she was on high rollers and she really liked trebek so she recommended uh merv griffin check him out and he did and tv history was made but almost not 
because <laughs> despite the fact that Trivial Pursuit had kind of made quiz shows more popular for TV executives, they still were really reluctant to give Jeopardy a primetime slot because initially the early versions were on during the day. And so some networks, including New York City, believe it or not, put Jeopardy on at two in the morning. <laughs> I mean, that kind of makes sense, too. Like, I can imagine Alex Trebek soothing people <laughs> after, like, a night out. This is the 70s or 84, like, when New York is still in the shit. Like, you come home and, you know, you're stirring a blackout. The son of Sam is still prowling around. <laughs> you know, there's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Travis Bickle is out there, and you come back, and it's just a better world. You just fall asleep to the sound of the bridges falling down and Alex Trebek. <laughs> did, I, did I offend New York properly during that bit? I mean, Good. I mean, this is this is the time when like the Bronx was burning and stuff. The famous yeah. like you know World Series thing where they're they're filming the World Series and like above Yankee Stadium or something, and then off in the distance you see fires in the Bronx. So no, that's that's probably a fair assessment. But um, okay. yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> game shows were known more as like a daytime thing. I mean, The Price is Right and Family Feud. I mm -hmm. mean, those were like mass audience shows. Uh, but yeah, networks, because this was a syndicated show, a lot of major markets really weren't willing to take a gamble on primetime with Jeopardy. So they put it in, you know, kind of a ratings wasteland at two in the morning, which, you know, I mean, sure, it's probably a great thing to watch before bed, but like how many people are really watching TV at two in the morning? And network suits really thought that a way to help sell the show was to dumb down the questions. They thought that it was, the show was too smart. And, uh, Trebek really took the time honored tactic of just saying yes <laughs> <laughs> and then doing whatever the hell he wanted. He basically said, oh, yeah, sure, well, we'll ease up on the material. And then he just completely left it alone, which, you know, I think is one of the things that's so great about the show is that it really doesn't talk down to no. anybody. I mean, you know, no. there, we, we'll talk more about how clues are written in a moment, but, I mean, I, I think that the, the head writer was interviewed, the head clue writer was interviewed as saying, you know, we want you to have three responses i knew that or darn i should have known that or wow i had no idea but now i'm really glad i do and that was kind of the <laughs> you know th that was sort of the litmus test for writing clues for this um for the show potent potables right. <laughs> but speaking about the clues the show is written by a team of eight writers plus a head writer and i think seven or eight researchers are on staff and they produce 230 games a season so that's if I did my math right, 14,030 clues a year, which is it's too many clues, pretty insane. And usually the way it's done is they start by coming up with a category. And from there, they kind of start crafting clues that would fit in that category and weed out the ones that, you know, aren't as strong. Apparently the toughest part is coming up with a question that only has one answer. They call that mm. pinning a clue where it's like you really Ooh. try to look at it from a million different sides to figure out if there's you know, any different ways that, you know, you can answer this one thing because that's... Do you think it's a very... I'm going to I'm gonna play the role that f the dear departed Fred Willard plays in Best in Show when you're just, like, giving me all this information and I'm going to ask utterly ridiculous questions. Oh, please like, go ahead. What do you think the sexual tension in the Jeopardy writer's room is? <laughs> is it, like, as bad as, like, SNL <laughs> or how much cocaine on the scale of to Lindsey Buckingham... <laughs> making Tusk. What do you think they're doing? Um, I'd say 
More more than who wants to be a millionaire, <laughs> um, but less than Wheel of Fortune, okay. maybe somewhere in the middle. All right. Okay. Okay. Cool. And and while we're talking about clues and categories, um, so there's actually like a whole calculus that is a little in the weeds that we were going to skip about this, but there's a whole, you know, number of, they have to do a certain number of clues for a category, but here's an interesting condition that they put on the final Jeopardy questions uh, only, which is each writer comes up with their own final Jeopardy questions, but their condition for those is that at least one of the members of the writer's team has to be able to answer it. Is that accurate? Yeah, Did which I, I mean, feel right? like that's a fair, you know, that that should probably be a condition of like all these questions, really. <laughs> <laughs> it does make it does make sense. Right. Uh, one of my favorite factoids about Jeopardy is that, well, they, they film five episodes in a single day, but it's all done on the same lot where The Wizard of Oz was filmed, which is interesting because <laughs> Alex Trebek hosted that short-lived game show, The Wizard of Oz. So oh, there's... Mm, yeah, exactly. I see uh, what you're doing. Yeah, are, God, five episodes a day. How long? What is that? Over an eight-hour shooting day? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, without the commercials, and I think without like the personal anecdotes and stuff, I think I read somewhere that mm-hmm. it's really only like thirteen minutes of game time, something like that. Oh, okay. I mean, if you think about it, taking the commercials out, that's like twenty-one, twenty-two minutes, and then right. personal anecdotes and Trebek's intro in the beginning mm-hmm. or whatever. I, it's not a lot. Also, I want to ask. I feel like there are two kinds of people in this world. People who <laughs> love the personal anecdote moments on Jeopardy and then the people who fast forward through them when they have it on DVR. I don't know. I feel like it, like your feeling on the personal anecdotes of Jeopardy are sort of really says a lot about are you endlessly fascinated by the diversity of the human experience or do you just want to know more potent potables? Yeah, skip it. Take me to the potent potables. I don't give a shit about you. I don't care. It's per- it's no personal deed. No real names. No eye contact. No real names. Come on to Jeopardy. It's about the answers. It's about the facts. It's about the love of the game. It's about the white hot crucible of person to person competitions. I don't give a shit where you're from. Cut to the chase, baby. That's my that's my tan. Yeah. Good luck. You're, Good luck cutting you're... around that, Runtalk. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Fucking try wow. it. <laughs> you, you, you evoking no kissing, no eye contact to describe Jeopardy is is bone chilling. I mean, I, no I know, real names. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange. That's what they come on as, and it's it just. I want if games only last thirty thirteen minutes of like playtime, it should be like deathmatch like you should film 10 film 20 of these a day more and more people in the more meat that the jeopardy machine threshes through that's what's honorable to me about it you know (laughs) um okay (laughs) we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Well, uh, well, according to the Jeopardy website, which does not refer to their contestants as meat, um, <laughs> the show tapes five episodes a day, around 46 days a year for regular season episodes, which uh, means there's about 230 new episodes shot every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeopardy shoots on the Sony Pictures lot, which is where not only Wheel of Fortune shoots, but also where Wizard of Oz was filmed, I believe, on the same soundstage. Mm. Um, is it haunted, so, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, isn't there that that myth about the um, yeah about the Munchkin, which is which is not true. not true. It was just yeah. a bird in the background. Well, it's definitely is... the ghost of Judy Garland's childhood is probably still haunting that place. <laughs> I thought I really thought this was gonna be like the most lighthearted, like, <laughs> yeah. fun episode. You and thought it's, wrong, we just, baby. Yeah. For I mean, speaking of you know, they, they do five episodes of uh, Jeopardy. We just taped three episodes. The third episode that we've taped today, we've done rumors with you know the blizzard of cocaine. We've done the Royal Tenenbaums, which involves somebody's finger getting sliced off, and uh, you know it, it, somehow Jeopardy was was not the one that I would have pegged as the one with <laughs> you evoking you know. The law of the blade. Yeah. My my I, I didn't, my Conan the Barbarian esque take on, on competition. <laughs> well, you know, it's just the it's just my quiz bowl killer instinct coming back, baby. I was gonna say, now I'm starting to see why this was so painful for you when you lost. <laughs> wow. Well, taking it to game day, contestants and games are chosen at random to ensure there's no cheating. And for each clue selected by a contestant, like, you know, whenever they say, I'll take potent potables for 400 or whatever, they actually have a dedicated person whose job it is to manually activate the game board backstage. So there's no robotic anything involved with this production. It's all compliance officers and people. They're like really strict about this. I love that. Um, Alex Trebek, 
because he shoots so many, uh, or because well, he shot uh, so many episodes a day, uh, he had to change his suit five times a day to, for the keep up the illusion that it was a different day. He supposedly had at one point over a hundred suits, um, which is pretty impressive. Uh, on game day, he would wake up at five fifteen in the morning and arrive at studio around six. And I guess he had a whole series of pre-show rituals, reading the newspaper, doing the crossword, all the kind of chill out stuff you'd probably imagine for a man of, um, of Trebek stature. <laughs> uh, and he reads through all the scripts and would read through all the game boards. I guess they had it like printed out on like a piece of paper, like the game board. And he would, you know, read through all, make sure he had all the pronunciations right and everything. And you would notice when he was at his podium in the middle of the game, he looked like he was writing stuff. Mm -hmm. He would scratch off doing? questions as he went oh. on on his little paper game board in front of him, just so um, you know, so he, he just to keep it from being confused. But yeah, there was something really sweet. I guess after he died, um, his suits were donated to something called the Doe Fund, which mm. gives uh, formerly incarcerated men uh, suits to wear on on job interviews. Is there? That's some uh, good mojo to bring in and on yeah. job interviews. I mean, Trebek, just, yeah. by all accounts, Trebek was. I mean, we'll get yeah. to more of this later, but by all accounts, Trebek was just just the best. And like you know, friends of mine who've interviewed him and stuff have said that he was just a, a magical guy. Um, but yeah, after uh, he would arrive at the lot at six a.m. and he was usually on his way home by like four. Um, good gig you know he's just like he's like i just go to work he's a craft dedicated to his craft oh yeah so we got some game time secrets from contestants there's been a lot of contestants over the years who've you know written blog posts and, and yeah you know started websites and stuff about you know um contestants usually watch from the audience before they're going up to play which has got to be nerve-wracking like when i was on who wants to be a millionaire i can't imagine I, they kept me backstage like i can't imagine watching other people do what I was about to try to do. Like that's got to mess with your head. Yeah, they're probably but, um, on purpose. They're like, we gotta, we're gonna maybe with these people. <laughs> um, but during gameplay, you get it's approximately thirteen minutes to answer fifty questions, and apparently contestants are not allowed to acknowledge family members or anybody in the audience in any way. No real names. Wave, I told you, you can't shout. But um, apparently, there was a time when one contestant, during their personal anecdote moment, proposed to his girlfriend. Uh, from the stage, who was and she was in the audience, which you know I imagine Trebek had a hand in in helping that. Um, no real names, <laughs> and she repl <laughs> she replied, "What is yes?" Because uh, nerds beget nerds. I suppose. This is when we yeah, have like the good. audience. The audience goes, "Aww." Mm -hmm. da, da, da. <laughs> that's um, not even apparently. The yeah, I was gonna say that's not even the first time that happened, baby. No, I guess there's somebody else who proposed to their girlfriend. They were just like in the audience and during a commercial break, he got down on one knee, uh, which I I admire the extreme fandom dedication, but there's something about proposing in the middle of a commercial break, just that that inherent fact kind of takes me out of it, but I it's love, cute. I and love then, wasn't important enough to be on the air. Well, I guess it, like when they came back, Trebek said something like, you know, we had a real bit of happy news from you know, the audience. And they I think they showed a picture of the guy like, you know, on his on one knee or something. But um, after the game is over, uh, again, they're shooting five 30 minute shows in a row with really kind of minimal breaks. Uh, the winner doesn't really have a whole lot of time to do any kind of major victory lap. So really, you only have about 10 minutes to, after, you know, the thrill of victory to go backstage, change your clothes, get your makeup reapplied and then go 
back out there behind the podium and uh, get back in the uh, in the gladiatorial <laughs> Thunderdome. Get back again. into yeah. Thunderdome. You know, Jordan, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love podium. Podii. I love podii. I love platforms. I love stages. I love <laughs> daises. I love rostrums. I love soapboxes. So about the podium. How's yeah, you that? Got some stuff to tell me about the podium. How's that, that for a segue? Uh, so we're under a little segment we like to call "Secrets of the Podium." <laughs> the first is risers, which is probably it seems pretty obvious. You want them all in the same shot. So rather than doing the classic thing that they do with Tom Cruise or Kiefer Sutherland when they put them on an apple crate, uh, they they do that. They actually do just that. They put them. Each of the podiums has risers. So they can get all the contestants roughly up to the same height. It's like in Taxi when Danny DeVito comes out from the stand the first time and he's like half as tall as everyone thought he was. And so moving on to another great aspect of the podii, there's one visual aspect of the podiums that's actually a a way for people to keep track of what's going on in the game. There's a little white light in the lower left-hand corner that'll turn on and that indicates um, the competitor who answered the last clue correctly. So I'll tell for, for Trebek to know like who's got the who's got control of the board and stuff like that just so he doesn't have to like keep track of everything that's going on. And to avoid some of the all important sight lines of the podium, the podii. Uh, <laughs> what is the plural of podium? Podium? I, I don't think there's ever been more than one podium in a given space ever. <laughs> so I I don't know Two you're, more on, you're on your own. Two more podiums actually exist in a state of superimposition at the same time. Um, there is speaking of speaking of things that exist in a state of quantum superimposition. There's two scoreboards going on at the same time in Jeopardy. There's the scoreboard behind or to the side of the contestants, and then there's one in all of their line of sight, so that that helps them uh, determine how much they're waging in the daily doubles and final Jeopardy. But so they are not constantly craning their necks to find out what's going on in the game. And then... Oh, this is my favorite. You know, Can I do this one? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, we'd be remiss if we didn't get a chance to talk about the screen pen. Yes, the screen pen. I mean, a lot of contestants have complained about, you know, how awful their handwriting looks and penmanship looks, you know, when they're writing their name and on uh, on their, their final Jeopardy answers and stuff like that. Uh, Ken Jennings, writing an article for Cracked, uh, wrote that it's like writing with an icicle on glass. It's apparently very hard to, uh, to use. Uh, and producers of the show apparently really go out of their way to make sure that contestants know the difference between the pen and the buzzer. Because apparently there was an incident where a, a woman was on the show and she was unable to buzz in for a single question during the entire first segment of the game. And when she complained during commercial, uh, someone on the set walked over and looked and realized <laughs> that she'd been trying to buzz in with the pen the whole time and just like clicking it furiously, which like is heartbreaking. To th- I mean, think about, you know, I mean, think about how many rounds of auditions and stuff that you got to go through <laughs> all the, pre- I mean, when people, and we'll get to this later, like c- contestants, when they know they're going to get a shot on Jeopardy, they spend like months preparing and all that. I mean, that is just that, that, that broke my heart. So if you ever do get to be <laughs> on Jeopardy, make sure you know the difference between the pen and the buzzer. It may save your life. <laughs> but while we were talking about the the audition process, it is so hard, and I can confirm this because I've tried to take the online test and, and did not get anywhere near it. Uh, it's so hard that you have, apparently you have a greater chance statistically becoming a New York Times bestselling author than a contestant on Jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> Jeopardy, according to its website, has a 
0.4 acceptance rate. I guess more than 100,000 people take the online application quiz each year. Of those, I think 3,000 would-be contestants are, are chosen for an interview. And then they're also subjected to a 50-question uh, a written test and I guess like a, a run-through live round of Jeopardy. Uh, and they have to complete all of those steps before they're being they ever ever asked to appear on air the annual the actual number of contestants annually varies because you know you never know how long a winning streak might go so there's no set number per year of contestants but it's usually less than a thousand and so for you know a hundred thousand people trying out annually that's that, those yeah, are some crazy board. odds. Now, before you try to audition, there are some things that can get you disqualified. People who've appeared on a nationally broadcast game show in the past year are ineligible. So are people who have appeared on three game shows in the last decade. Um, and most importantly, you can't be on Jeopardy if you've been on Wheel of Fortune. I didn't realize they were, that Jeopardy was so spiteful. Uh, towards Wheel of, Wheel of Fortune. No, they're the same. They're owned by the same. I think it's like a conflict of interest thing or something. They're owned by the same. Uh, Which one like, would you rather be on? Oh, Jeopardy. I, I watched Jeopardy so often that I, when Trebek was alive, I could predict the um, the Daily Double because I, there was an imperceptible <laughs> pause in his voice, and I knew it every time. <laughs> and like, oh, I I loved it. That would have that was my. I I, I deeply regret not being smart enough to I mean you know you 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 might have dodged a bullet like considering considering had you made it you would have been put in the position of lying to everyone that you know <laughs> like go go ahead and explain what happens if you're actually selected that is true um I mentioned this earlier Jeopardy is sort of like Fight Club winners really can't talk about where they're going they're very secretive and a lot of game shows are like this too you can't really tell people that you're about to go on to a game show and it gets really hard when you win as much as someone like say ken jennings did when he had 74 wins and he'd recorded 48 shows before his first <laughs> episode aired because they taped these way in advance yeah and so he was missing from his work, his job, like every other Tuesday and Wednesday for like months on end, and um, I, I guess I guess he did tell his boss. I think it was in his interview with Cracked, which is a, a great piece where he talks all about you know his, his experience on Jeopardy. He said, "My boss told my coworkers a series of increasingly implausible lies about my whereabouts every other Tuesday and Wednesday." Sorry, this is on his website. You think computer programmers are all geniuses? No one ever caught on. I don't think I realized. That's got to be one of the more innocuous uh, things to get caught doing in secret. <laughs> yeah, you're secretly on Jeopardy. No, that's that's fair. Um, there, and I mentioned this earlier. The way that people prepare, not only for the you know auditions, or not only to be on the show, but the auditions. It, there's pretty elaborate methods to do so. And there is a massive internet archive of, I believe every Jeopardy question ever. And it's called the, the J exclamation mark archive, um, J archive. Uh, and I guess they file transcripts for, I think every episode of Jeopardy that exists. I haven't checked it in a while, but I, I, as of like, I think, 2011 it had i think almost everything out there according to an article on slate and again this was in 2011 so i'm sure that this number has increased significantly there were 412,883 clues that you can study 
And I guess a computer programmer ran them all through some kind of a program looking for patterns and commonalities and all mm-hmm. the categories and questions. And, you know, as I said, this article's a decade old, so the ratio might have changed. But at least back in 2011, the most common category was before Potent and parables. after. No, actually, it was before and after, which... I, I hate, I am so bad at all the word game things. <laughs> um, I mean, again, there have been hundreds of categories that have been included on the show over the years multiple times, but this one appeared as of 2011, 114 times. So that's, it's pretty frequent. What is its incidence? It accounts for, according to the Slate article, uh, 0.26% of all categories. And that's one out of every 387 categories. So you have a one in 387 shot of you getting a before and after, which is like part of being a contestant. Like you have to like run the numbers on this kind of stuff like blackjack. Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, I, I don't know about that, but I, the, the way that people prepare for this is nuts. We can get into that now. I mean, Ken Jennings, at least. Has said, well, wait, before we do, what's the other what's the other statistical find from this? Oh, that's right. The most common answer most common correct answer I should say on Jeopardy is what is China? Uh, so if you ever find yourself in Jeopardy and for some reason you need to make a guess, which is usually not advisable because if you make a guess and you're wrong, you lose money. But if for sake of argument, you need to make a guess, say what is China? Statistically, that's most often the common response, or at least it was in 2011. So you know what? We're counting cards, it. baby. We're, we're 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 getting into this. But studying up on you know the statistics of questions is you know the, it's only going to get you so far, right? They, yeah, the probability of whether or not the answer is what is China, eh, maybe not as helpful as say learning how the buzzer works, mastering the buzzer. Uh, Ken Jennings, you know, probably the biggest. Jeopardy streak winner of the past recent whatever he attributes his success to his reflexes and fans of the show obviously know that one of the inviolable rules of the game is that contestants have to wait for the host to finish the clue completely before they can press the buzzer but that was not always the case according to the show's official website earlier in its history contestants could ring the buzzer at any point during the clue which obviously led to you know people jumping the gun giving quick guesses a lot of negative scores and general confusion um in 1985 producers decided to silence the buzzers because the noise was too distracting and kept interrupting but that still wasn't how they decided to tamp down on on this this wildly out of order uh, chaotic atmosphere of jeopardy with cocaine and i'm no, sorry so now there is a crew member and this is jeopardy is a really impressive jobs creator because <laughs> now there's a crew member whose job is to turn on everybody's buttons at the precise moment the host finishes reading the final syllable of the last word of the clue well i guess if you if you ring in early i guess it locks you out for like you yeah. get like a like a uh, i forget like a fraction of a second penalty for doing that, which I mean, again, is I mean, it's a cruel game, Jeopardy. <laughs> and you know, the other time too is the other corollary that they discovered from that was by preventing people from buzzing in early. Um, Greg gave time for the home audience to be able to shout out the answers too. Um, but some people have talked about like the physical lengths that they went to, and there are you know articles out there as you might expect proper thumb placement, your hand position. Um, but people practice with a fake buzzer. Uh, or even just like a pen. Said, yeah, I would imagine a pen. Like a clicking pen, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, one contestant said, I would stand up in front of the TV with a pen in my hand to simulate the buzzer. Um, that got me used to the rhythms and speed of Trebek's speaking voice, which is such a... F- Talk That's about getting in people's Yeah, getting in people's heads. Like, oh man. This show is insidious. Other winners <laughs> practice by sh- by this is insane. Other pr- winners have practiced by shine having a bright light shown in their face and playing along with friends to mimic the added pressure that an audience brings. Like it's like it's like uh like the opposite of a sensory depth tank. <laughs> you know, they're they're bombarding you with stuff to see how well you can hold up under pressure. Well, it's like training to like be in NASA when they like put you in like a, <laughs> a like a. The G-Force machine? Yeah, G- yeah. When, like, you know, okay, steer yourself out of this. Like, yeah. it's. I went to space camp, and they didn't pull this kind of stuff. <laughs> and But, you know, people have also developed uh, strategies for for playing to go along with all this. Stra- I mean, how could you not? If you're going to prep the physical minutiae, <laughs> you better have a strategy for playing. So what are some of those? Well, there's really kind of two schools of thought with how to play Jeopardy. I mean, there's the, 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 the recommended, the classically trained version, and this is the game, the method that the show recommends, is basically the slow and steady route where you just move methodically down the category, starting with the easiest questions and working your way up to the hard ones. Ken Jennings later said, it's easier to follow at home and it helps players uh, acclimate to a category before getting to the really hard clues. He said that in an interview with Mental Floss. But there is, for the rebellious Jeopardy contestant, there is a technique known as forest bouncing. And it was named for a uh, 1986 Tournament of Champions winner, Chuck Forrest. And it's basically, you bounce back and forth kind of at random between categories, different levels of, basically you're prioritizing randomness to try to catch the other (laughs) contestants off guard, to wrong foot the other contestants, and increase your chances of getting a daily double. So apparently this is legal, but discouraged because it makes it harder for players at home to play along. So Forrest bouncing may be legal, but you know what's not? legal what's not certain bids for final jeopardy mm. apparently contestants are not allowed to make certain wagers at the at the very end uh one of them is 69 they are not allowed to bid 69 dollars lame yeah they uh, th- there are five banned dollar amounts 69 is one of them that was banned in 2018 uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, that made, that made it a long time. But uh, Ken Jennings said in a tweet in 2019 that it, it it was a very recent banning. Jeopardy James, the famous 32-time Jeopardy winner, Je- James Holzauer, I think is how you say his last name. He also chimed in on apparently this tweet thread about banned Jeopardy bids. Uh, that there are four <laughs> other banned wagers. Uh, 666, you can't bid $666. You can't Whack. bid... Which, you know, for alleged satanic reasons. And then I was not familiar with this. You can't bid $14 or $88 or $1,488. I guess there's a white supremacy group connotation to 1488. I I wasn't familiar with that. But uh, that has been banned as well. So those are the five banned Jeopardy bids. And speaking of Final Jeopardy, there has been a three-way tie only once. In the they end. really missed an opportunity to um, score this to the end of the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> just like have just a long protracted shot of that. Also, setting it out in a graveyard. <laughs> I have ideas if they ever tap me. 
Um, oh yeah, they need a new host. Yeah, we. I, I go. We're, we're not. By the way, for anyone you know who's still listening to this episode, um, we are. We're not going to get into the whole current debacle that is trying to find a new permanent Jeopardy nope, host. Not we're, we're going. That. We're going classic Jeopardy all the way. Um, but yes, it was March sixteenth, two thousand seven. All three contestants answered the final Jeopardy question correctly with matching scores of sixteen thousand apiece, and they're all invited to play again the next day or 10 minutes later, depending on whether or not you were at home <laughs> or in the studio audience. Uh, there has actually been one Jeopardy catastrophe that has mercifully never happened. And that's if all three contestants have negative scores before going in the final Jeopardy. I guess if that did happen, according to the rules of the game, I think this is on the show's website. Uh, in the event, all three contestants have zero or minus amounts at the end of double Jeopardy. No final Jeopardy round would be played. I wonder how they would fill that time. I almost wonder if, like, why didn't you just give them more like, personal anecdotes? Yeah, more personal anecdotes. I don't know. Give give them house money to play with. Like, you got you got ad time, <laughs> or maybe they're gonna maybe they're hoping that happens so they got more ad time to sell. I don't know, but um, uh, apparently their website suggests that they would make up a new rule like on the fly if that ever actually uh, happened. <laughs> we'll do it live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, that has never happened, and it's it's sort of statistically unlikely to ever happen. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. 
Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Huggle, why don't you tell us what happens to the contestants and their prize money? Well, uh, up until 1984, everyone received the full value of their cash winnings, even if they hadn't made the overall, even if they hadn't won overall. But Jeopardy quit doing that because (laughs) people ruin everything (laughs) is basically what happened. Jeopardy stopped doing that because it became clear that uh, to contestants that if they weren't going to win, they would just start hoarding their money by playing conservatively or refusing to participate or guess. Um, they just, would not, they just wouldn't this, buzz in. They just wouldn't play. Yeah, yeah. And, and just running out the clock. And and there was a, an incident where a contestant kind of rather sweetly needed money for an engagement ring. Uh-oh. And as soon as, yeah, aw, audience, audience <laughs> goes, aw. Um, and so he just like stood in like mute silence <laughs> for, uh, for the rest of the episode after he'd made enough and then, so back then, if you uh, won, won, if you made it to the end of the show while still having negative money, uh, that just meant walking away with nothing. So then from 1984 to 2002, the show started giving second and third placers non-cash items like vacations and sponsor merch. Um, but then since May 2002 and up till today, non-winners take home a set amount of cash. So now you've got fixed prizes. Second place winners pick up two grand. Third place finishers get $1,000. And the rationale behind that is it's intended to at least cover their flight and their hotel since the show does not pay for that. Um, I mean, that would be yeah. a big expenditure if they're flying in people from, you know, all around the country and everything. That I mean, what's sense. the money? What's the calculus behind Jeopardy? Like, aside from Trebek, I guess there's a small army of people who work on this show, apparently. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if the buzzer person... Well, like, yeah, you, you got know, the buzzer the, the, the guy, the clue person. That like 16, 16 writers. Trebek ain't Trebek ain't cheap, you know. I mean, he was worth, worth every, every damn penny. every penny. Yeah, man. Yeah, I do wonder what the calculus is there. They could afford it. I think they could afford it. I mean, there either are that way, many whatever shoot days. That's the other. There, there's. I guess yeah. they shot. What did I say? Forty six days a year. I mean, that's how many. I don't know. If- I'm going to use my platform. My massive platform and the my, the massive reach I have on social media, <laughs> all of my followers to engage <laughs> and force Jeopardy to pay for flights and hotels for contestants. I think that's just a small thing. So, oh, I did. I mean, that's what I'm getting behind in 2022. That's the hill you're going to die on. This is in my pet cost. Yeah, I will die on this hill, and it can take. Closing, <laughs> finally getting back around to what we were talking about. Spiting a game show that you've never been on and have no desire yeah, to be on. Don't watch. Um, it takes six months to get your cash. How about that? You got a six-month waiting period. What about that guy who's trying to get engaged? They take six months to give him... Oh, man. Jeopardy, you do people dirty. Savage show. It's a savage show. All right. Let's talk about... What happens when you win? Let's talk about some of the people who have won. Won. I already, I already. We name dropped Ken Jennings. What happened to Ken Jennings? Uh, Ken Jennings. That's right. We name dropped him. He uh, has the record for the most consecutive games won. That's seventy four. That was in uh, two thousand four. 
Uh, it's really sweet. Apparently when he finally did lose, he said that he saw tears in Trebek's eyes and like they got kind of tight during it. Yeah. And during his run, he won $2,520,700. And in the regular season, I think that's the most anyone has ever played playing Jeopardy. Um, and Jennings, he later said that the experience kind of gave him a mild form of PTSD. Uh, he says he basically can't watch jeopardy anymore mm-hmm. like it oh, just I'm completely sure. no. changes reality like he said and this is a quote from I, I think this is his cracked article i find that i have a hard time sitting on my couch and lazily shouting answers at trebek like i used to everything about the show the music the graphics the sound effects causes some fight or flight adrenaline spike in my blood <laughs> and i become hyper aware of every detail of the show maybe i have post-traumatic stress disorder what about Brad Rudder. That's right. Brad Rudder has won the most amount of money if tournaments are included. I think he's just like a recurring uh, mm. tournament winner. His all-time winnings are almost $5 million, $4,938,436. And Jennings' total amount of money ever won, including his tournament of champions winnings, is $4,370,700. So both obscene amounts of money, but Brad Rutter uh, edges him out. And then the most that someone could conceivably ever win on one episode of Jeopardy is um, $566,400. That's like, that's like a 300 wired score in bowling or something. Like that's something okay. that's like, you know, you, you, a contestant would have to sweep both boards, find all three daily doubles make them true daily doubles and wait, go all in on final jeopardy. I mean, the, the statistics of that are just absolutely ridiculous. No one has gotten anywhere close to, you know, to that amount. The closest so who that, does have that. Yeah. I was going to say, count, tell me the closest is, is jeopardy. James, James Holzhauer. He's the current hall of famer with the highest single game winnings. He won $131,127 on Damn. April 17th, 2019. He owns the list of the top 10 highest single game scores. They're literally all him. I mean, it, that's it, not bad for 13 minutes of work. No, that's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, you want to hear about the lowest scores? I absolutely do. Oh yeah. The lowest scores. I mean, they would make Sean Connery on SNL celebrity (laughs) jeopardy blush. Um, for a normal game, I don't even want to say his full name. A man named Patrick, uh, currently holds the current (laughs) record for the lowest single game score of minus 7,400. That was just recently in July, 2021. I mean, you know, I see how it could have happened. It's 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 easier than you would expect. If you're really like dying, the only way to dig yourself out is just to keep buzzing in, just try yeah. like hail. I mean, because you can't like once you're in the red, you can't go low. Like you know, it doesn't matter at that point. All you can do is you could go big or go home. Like just try for it. And so you know, obviously that didn't work out that great for this this gentleman. <laughs> yeah. um, Prior to that, the lowest score was by a woman named Stephanie in March 2015, and that was uh, minus 6,800. She told Slate in an interview in 2020 that she has not rewatched the episode since it aired, but Mm. um, she has some theories about why she did so poorly. She said that the daily doubles were gotten by the other players, and that's really key in terms of strategy. Um... She also said that she buzzed in and answered incorrectly on every $2,000 question. Ooh, 
that's rough. But I guess she said that uh, Trebek tried to make her feel better afterwards by coming up to her and saying, that was a really weird board. Really weird board. So it's, it's, that's like nice. nice that's like nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But apparently th- this woman's uh, Stephanie created an online community for uh, female Jeopardy players uh, huh. because a Facebook group because um, and this is a quote from her because it turns out the people who tend to get the most negativity on the Internet are women. Shocker. <laughs> um and so they uh, have created what she calls sort of an internet sorority of smart women who have opinions on lots of different things and support each other and care about each other and help each other and we're there for each other. And she said it's been a great support system and she's made some great friends that way from fellow female Jeopardy contestants, which I think is, is I love awesome. That. Uh, you know what I also love? The hmm. lowest celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you could, well, you see the answer in front of you. I was going to say the person who has the lowest celebrity Jeopardy score was not the person I would have expected. It is Wolf Blitzer. Uh, he Beli- has- belying both of his names. <laughs> he has the, the lowest celebrity Jeopardy score. Uh, he hit negative 4,600 during the Jebel Jeopardy round. Because it was all for charity, the producers gave him a grand so that he could participate in Final Jeopardy so we could raise more money or try to raise more money. He's like pity. He's like pity money. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and he, yeah. Blitzer. What, 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 do you remember what show it was that they had a bit about? Was it The Simpsons where they talk about taking away money? Which, which yeah. Is, yeah. It's like, you got you got negative 2,600, Marge. Pay up. And they like take her out back. Yeah. And was that actually him? I think it was actually it him. It wouldn't surprise me. Doing yeah. the voice, yeah, because I know he he appeared. He did all sorts of guest spots on like he was on Baywatch. Hmm. He was on. I mean, as we talked about in Rugrats, he was yep. uh, a Trebek esque game show host in that. Like he was really game for a lot. I mean, he said in an interview, like you know, being able to like laugh at yourself is kind of crucial at uh, at, you know, just at, for being a public figure. And the best. Ugh. I'm, I'm going to become inarticulate over this next category because it's so damn funny. It's one of my, like, even, you know, when, like, when there was, like, that kind of wilderness era when you could just, like, Kazaa or LimeWire, like, SNL skits and just download the audio from it? Oh, yeah. So now I have, like, I that was, like, some of the stuff that I spent, like, the most time downloading. So I had all of these on, like, just on my, <laughs> like, headphones when I was, like, going around and mowing the lawn for money in my neighborhood. So just, like... Will Ferrell as Alex Trebek just saying shit like, and the show has reached a, a new low. low. Like that's just burned in my head for forever. I love it so dearly. I mean, yeah, his cadence on that was so. I mean, the funny thing was, was that it didn't approach anything like Trebek nope. actually sounded. That was kind of the best part. It was that it was just totally its its own thing, and Trebek reportedly loved it yeah. because he yeah, he guessed it. Yeah, he guessed it on it. So, but but yeah, I mean what. <laughs> Art imitating real life, life imitating art. Did he actually hate Sean Connery? No. I mean, somebody apparently asked Trebek, like, have you ever met him? And he said, no, no. But if I did, I'd punch him in the mouth. I'd, no, no. This quote was, if I were to ever meet Sean Connery, I would punch his lights out. <laughs> um, he did make a cameo on the um, Saturday Night Live Celebrity Jeopardy sketch. Um, sadly, it wasn't all that funny. No, it's one uh, of the ones that has kind of the flatter lines. Uh, it, it lands with a, the line has not aged well. Yes. No, uh, that is true. But no, he apparently was a big fan of the SNL celebrity Jeopardy sketches. Well, I mean, Trebek can afford to be self-deprecating because I mean, obviously he's a national treasure and Jeopardy is, I don't know if you know this, the most decorated game show in history. Bam. 
What's the rack of, what, give me the lightning round. What are the plaudits? Uh, I think it is earned four Guinness World Records. Uh, announcer Johnny Gilbert, you know, the, this is Jeopardy guy. Uh, <laughs> he holds the record for the longest career as a game show announcer for a single show. Um, <laughs> and Alex Trebek is, is uh, you know, he's the, who's the baseball? No, I was going to make a sports Oh, Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah, he's the, I, Alex Trebek, obviously the Cal Ripken Jr. of, of trivia TV shows. That is my one sports factoid, by the way. I remember the day he broke that record, my principal walked into the, our elementary school classroom and wrote whatever number of games he played on the board and underlined mm. it and gave this very stern face, like, this is a lesson in endurance. <laughs> and I, obviously, I never forgot it, like, 30 almost years later, but... Uh, and here we are relating it to hosting a game show. <laughs> uh, a, but yeah, so that is and one- brawn. Yeah, exactly. So that is one of the other Guinness records that the show holds. Um, it also holds the uh, most Emmy awards, most Emmy wins of any any game show at forty one. Jesus, and it's also the banana. It's the bonanza. Although now it's the Simpsons. We have to update that reference. It's the Simpsons of game shows. It's the longest running quiz show of all time. Wow. And, and it, it even yeah, this go ahead. is nuts. It also won a Peabody Award in twenty eleven, which is one of the most prestigious awards in broadcasting. So, well done, Jeopardy. I think it deserves all of its honors. And Trebek, I cannot say enough about the guy. You know, truly one of the most beloved pop cultural figures. Uh, I'd like to end with a tribute to the late, great Alex Trebek. Um, It's a story that, to me, is really a testament to the man. He was big on April Fool's Day and used to Mm -hmm. use the show as a stage for these pranks. And in 2016, he pulled off what I think is kind of the most amazing April Fool's Day prank for a man of his stature. He walked out onto the uh, Jeopardy set at the beginning of the show with no pants on, <laughs> uh, which I just think is, uh, that that's my my favorite memory of the man. Yeah, even with all of those Emmy, 41 Emmy wins. Well, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really happy with ending on the image of uh, a pantsless Alex Trebek <laughs> on stage at Jeopardy. I think that that's like, you know, it's like at the end of Butch Cassidy and a Sundance Kid where there's like a freeze frame. <laughs> like, that's kind of how I would like to remember him and sum up this whole uh, this this whole experience for probably if you were to pin me down, say my favorite show. I'm going to go ahead and have a few potent potables in his honor. <laughs> well, uh, Heigl, thank you for, for indulging me on this one. I know this this was probably traumatic for you to revisit the, uh, the quiz bowl, <laughs> but I, I thank you because I really had a great time doing this one. Until next time, I'm Jordan Runtog. Yeah, I'm Alex Heigl, and this has been Too Much Information. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.